This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. If you've ever dreamed of starting your own firm, maybe you've just graduated from school, perhaps you've worked in another firm and seen firsthand what not to do and decided it's time to go out on your own. Today's topic is starting a design firm. Today's episode is brought to you with support from the fine folks at Sherwin-Williams. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are talking about starting your own design firm, something I think every architect walking the planet has thought about at various times throughout their career. I know that I have. Joining us from the Long Studio, located off the coast of Maine on Mount Desert Island, friend of the show, architect, designer, filmmaker extraordinaire, and I think an individual who single-handedly causes a generation of architects to dream about hanging up their own shingle, today's special guest, Eric Reinhold from 30 by 40 Design Workshop. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. That's a fantastic introduction. Thank you. Well, I believe it's all factually correct. <laughs> I'm not sure about the filmmaker extraordinaire part, but oh, yeah, I'll take it. Please. <laughs> You're being modest because if there's one thing that comes up where your name is mentioned, other than the fact that you seem to have an endless bag of skills, you know, people go, what can't this guy do? But it always kind of starts somewhere in the realm of, have you seen this guy's videos? They're amazing. Appreciate that. Yeah. I can't do window details though. So that's a problem. (laughs) I don't believe that for a second. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, I hate so. doing them. I'm aspiring to copy those videos for some of my students. So <laughs> okay, you have to come yeah. pick your brain at some point. Yeah, right on. Of course. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. So since we have you on the show, and there's a particular reason why we asked you to join us today, and this is actually the second episode we've kind of talked about where starting a firm has been involved. One happened on episode 30, and we had a guy, Michael Shu, join us. He did a great job, and, and he's got a really interesting story, and, but it's, it's a very kind of traditional pathway. He was a superstar in school. He came out, he got a superstar job right out of school. He grew within that firm to be the superstar. And then as soon as the partner said, hey, I want you to join me, he goes, I'm out. And he left. That was what gave him the confidence to start his own office. Sure. So he kind of already been around the block many, many times, already had kind of an in-depth Rolodex of contacts and names and people and people he could reach out to. And once he said, hey, going out on my own, if you got anything, throw it my way. And then he gets buried. I mean, that's kind of how it worked for him. Yeah. And I know that first video I saw of yours that you made was kind of you telling your story about how you decided to go out on your own. And I thought it was interesting about your story and I'm going to let you tell it. But the thing that makes it interesting to me and the reason why I wanted to have you on is you are a sole practitioner. So there are lots of people that listen to the show and that send me emails. They're in a position that's not too unlike where you're at now. You know, the idea that you were someplace, you started to open your own office, you work by yourself. You are a one-man team of heavy hitters. You do everything. And so I thought if we're going to talk about starting a firm, it should be from the perspective of someone who started it with just themselves and that's who they rely upon. So again, thanks for joining us. We're going to pick your brain today. Yeah, great. Glad to share my story. Yeah. So let's start with it. Let's hear the story. An army of one. Yeah, army of one. (laughs) Right. I think like probably most people, Graduating architecture school, I stepped into the profession and felt a little bit disillusioned with what I was, the tasks I was assigned. You know, you get out of design school and you think you're this hot designer and 
that, you know, your first job, you're going to be doing the design work, right? I mean, you just came out of school and uh, it was, of course, not like that. And I practiced many years in pretty traditional firms. I practiced in large firms, sort of medium-sized firms. When I moved to Maine, I practiced in a pretty small firm. So it was about a firm of six and we kind of grew to maybe 10 and, you know, kind of fluctuated up and down depending on what the economy looked like. And I had always wanted to practice residential architecture, designing homes. That was why I became an architect. And this firm did that. And, you know, there's one of the reasons why I went to work for them was because they were doing award-winning work. So I thought, you know, if I'm looking to potentially in the future, open my own firm, I want to have a portfolio of work that looks like award-winning work. So that was conceptually how I chose to work with them. But makes perfect sense. Yeah, it was, I worked for them for a number of years and, uh, you know, through the recession, 2008 here, recession started and it didn't really end. It was kind of bottoming out in 2012 and they were taking on everything they possibly could and some pretty, I would say, crap projects. So I wasn't like loving that work, but I was also realizing that they got to make all the decisions and I was fully capable of doing the work, but I was getting none of the sort of, I wasn't sharing in the credit for that. And I wasn't also sharing in financially what that meant for the firm. And I was working a ton of hours. And so I kind of got to this point, you know, where I decided, I think this might be a good time for me to jump ship. And I had some side work that I had lined up because basically the firm had said, look, everyone's got to take a pay cut, 20% pay cut, because it's pretty bad. And we don't want to close up shop, but you're going to take a pay cut. And it's up to you what you do with the sort of 20% time that we're cutting. And so they. So did they furlough you? Were you furloughed for 20% or are they like still, you're in the office 40 hours plus a week? Yeah. So what they didn't, they said, take that last day, whatever day it is, you know, the eight hours that we're not actually going to pay you and you can do with it whatever you choose. We'd prefer you to stay in the chair and work and, you know, try and drum up business. But we fully understand if you need to make up for that lost revenue. And so that's what I did. I basically said, well, I'm going to start laying the foundations of my own thing because what I thought was a sure bet, you know, a paycheck every two weeks was not so sure anymore. And that was, right. that was the bell that went off. And I was like, all right, I think, you know, I'm going to lay the foundations of what became my business now, 30 by 40. So eventually we kind of parted ways. And what I did was kind of build a smaller version of the firm that I had just left. And so I was, you know, I think when everyone who's just starting, you kind of take anything that comes along, right? There's renovation project. I was taking stuff that was like two hours away from the office because naively I thought, well, I want to go off on my own. I got this great portfolio of work, these projects that I had done that have won awards and people want to do two and $3 million houses. They're going to hire me. And they weren't hiring me. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously I was getting the renovation work that was, you know, a couple hours down the road because I was one guy. And the guy with two million bucks wants to hire a team of people and draftsmen and the firm and the award-winning name and all that. So I think that reality of the situation was a little bit different than my initial expectation. And so I had all these kind of small projects. And I think probably a lot of people start off this way, just like yeah. innovation. I did some light commercial work. I had some stuff that I had lined up with a developer previously. And you know, I was doing that moonlighting on the side prior to starting my business. But then when I had all this time to do it, I just worked through those projects really quickly because they're pretty easy to do. So that left me with some spare time to start thinking about, well, is this really what I want to do? Because, you know, I think people are always, you're concerned with getting work. But 
the real concern after you spend some time working is you want good work. You want good clients. You want better clients than the ones you're probably starting off with. And well, you know, hold on. I want to ask you about that. Andrew will test this. I like to interrupt people. (laughs) So the question about that, that I find is kind of interesting is there's the ability to pick and choose your clients and your projects. For a lot of people, it's a bit of a luxury, right? So for a while, that statement kind of suggests to me that you're doing well enough that you can start to be choosy as opposed to, I just got to keep the lights on and I'm taking whatever I want. Or did you say, I'm going to scale back and if I only do 20 hours of work, but it's work I'm proud of, then that's what's going to happen? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of fundamental shifts that happen. I realized if I was going to go out on my own and be happy doing this, like it had to look like what I had envisioned it looking like. And I didn't have a fully formed picture of what that was, but it wasn't going to be the jobs that I had just previously left. Like I didn't want to build another kind of smaller version of those firms. And what I could see was happening was I could continue this cycle of taking small renovations, small renovations, small renovations, like ad infinitum, right? And if I didn't break that cycle, I'd never have the space to wait for the better projects to come along. And if I started building a portfolio of light commercial work, maybe it was schools or municipal buildings or whatever, it wasn't really stuff I wanted to be doing more of. So why would I keep doing that? So there was an intentional shift there. I did have a project that was fairly consistent throughout that. It was so awful. It was just like numbingly bad. The clients did not want good design. They just wanted someone to get drawings approved. And you know, I was having a similar experience with the developers that I was working with. It just wasn't right. So I did make a, a conscious shift there. And I did sacrifice income for sure. Because I realized the services side of the business can only scale to a certain point, right? There's only so many hours you can work in a day. And there's only an upper end to the billing rate that I can charge in this area, right? And so at some point, it's not going to work. Like the math is not going to work. I'm not going to be able to scale this. So I thought it'd be nice if I could split the business into two things, you know, kind of divorce that relationship between time worked and money earned. And that was interesting to me because I saw some sort of test cases of ways I could do that. You know, I had started writing for House at that time and I had my own blog. I built my own house and I was blogging about that. You know, it's all similar timeframes to when you started Life, Life of an Architect. Not nearly as successful, but it taught me this idea about making assets, these assets that might sort of start to earn me revenue over time. So after I did my house, I kind of started selling the plan sets and I built that on the back of the blog. I started making videos. You know, I started experimenting with all of these things that I thought, well, if I make a little video here, maybe I can earn some advertising revenue. And that's honestly how I got started with YouTube. It was just like one of maybe 10 or 15 different experiments that I was making and just trying to see what kind of products I could make that would help earn some revenue on the side so that I didn't just have to sit in the office and earn dollars for when I was only when I was sitting here. And, you know, a lot of those experiments were not successful. And certainly the YouTube channel, I actually started it back in 2013 when I opened 30 by 40. And it took about four years for it to actually get to the video that you saw, Bob. That's funny. So I think it was a long process of running these experiments and really trying to figure out like, how could I find good clients that would pay me, you know, a nice fee 
but not have to have five of them all at once because that's right. way too stressful. It's five clients and contractors and budgets and you know the whole drill that comes along with working with clients, right? Let me do this. Yeah. Because we have, I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you. And you're answering all my questions without, oh, sorry. Me, without me asking. <laughs> Ahead of time. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. I love all it. I'm not, and I'm not interrupting you to shoot your wheels off. I know Andrew's chomping at the bit to ask something. And I wanted to ask you a question before we got so far downstream from the point you made that we lose track of it. So, Andrew, what did you want to ask? I just wanted to ask that when you talk about making that conscious decision to switch your work, how far was that into being on your own? Or was that like from the get-go? I'm just going to start my thing and I'm going to change this business model. Or was it that I was working on my own for a while? And then I decided, oh, this isn't working. I'm going to make that shift. Yeah, it was the latter. I mean, it was, you have to kind of get your feet wet and really figure out like, well, is this something I want to do? Is this something I'm interested in? And, you know, like I said, I had, I think at one point I had five different projects that were running at once and they were not great. <laughs> you know, it was nothing that I did. And look at those projects and say, oh yeah, that's going to look good in the portfolio. Like none of them were that. And I thought, well, how is this going to work long-term? Like, how am I going to get the people that right. I was working with? Like, I just left this job where I was doing these awesome projects. How am I going to get those people to notice me if I just keep doing this right. stuff? So it was a conscious decision that was made probably in year one. Yeah, so, during year one. Yeah. That's what I was curious about. How long did yeah. it take you to so realize? I, when I was writing for house.com, that was one of the, my kind of early marketing tactics because I didn't have an audience. So I was like, well, who's got a bigger audience than me? It was Howes at the time. You know, I started writing for them. The articles I was writing became the foundation for my first book. So I was basically like trying to figure out how to start a design practice. And I was writing these articles. They were called design practice or something like that for Howes.com. And they became really popular articles. And so I said, oh, I should just take those articles and make a book out of it. So you can see the, the first book that I wrote architect and entrepreneur was all of those experiments. And I wrote about them publicly on house and I just kind of crunched right. them up into a book and said, well, people seem to be interested in this. So yeah. I'll just offer it for sale. There's definitely a market for people, you know, because we've said many, many times that a lot of architects come out of their educational process, which is wide and deep, but seems to always miss kind of the business side of running an office. And so we're good problem solvers. We're highly educated. Most of us are reasonably intelligent, but somehow I always describe it like we don't know anything about business. And I always say, it's kind of like homeowners. They'll challenge me on everything, but oh my God, they can't pick out a paint color. So they have to get the interior designer to pick a color. And I'm like, I'm designing your whole house and you have no problems telling me what to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are chatting today with Kara Baldev. Architectural Sales Manager for Metal Coatings, North America at Sherwin-Williams. Thanks for joining us today, Kara. How are you? Thanks. Great. We're here to talk about architectural metal coatings. So will you start us off by just explaining architectural metal coatings for everybody? So you've probably heard of our group, which was once branded as Valspar. We've been producing factory applied finishes such as our Floripon 70% PVDF line for about 55 years. As of two years ago, we're part of the Sherwin-Williams huge paint group. And our group still focuses on that the same factory applied baked on finishes that you see on curtain wall products, louvers, metal facades, and roof panels that we've been producing for decades. Yeah. 
we're often behind the scenes of your favorite manufacturers for these types of products. You just might not know it. So Kara, how does your team work with all the components involved in this process to bring an architect's vision to life? Yeah, we have a wide range of customers. So some architects start with the vision of the metal panel, and then they go to the curtain wall and the glass. We can help you coordinate all of those different segments with our wide customer range. And by specifying a specific color, you can make sure that there isn't slight variation that disrupts your aesthetic vision for those types of products. So we do work with you on coordinating the products that have factory applied finishes, as well as the functional use of the coatings and how you can address whether you're concerned with weathering next to the seacoast or scratch resistance and durability on the interior products. Wonderful. So Kara, how can metal coatings be used to transform the building aesthetic of a facade? I mean, you mentioned a little bit, but can you go into it a little bit more? Right. So in order to transform that facade, one way that we can help with your facade design is by altering the colors, creating somewhat semi-subtle variations and finishes. Yeah. And as I understand, you have a webinar that's available and some project case studies that are available online for this. We do have a webinar that dives into the dynamics of altering these finishes and the resins and the performance criteria behind those as well. And that would be also an hour-long CEU that's available. You know, that's great because now that we're all working from home, getting our online CEUs is pretty important. Yeah. So we'll put a link to that particular webinar for everybody to have access to get your CEU. I have a question for you, and it has to do with what questions can an architect ask to make sure they're specifying the right exterior coating? That seems to be one of the ones that always gets me. How do I know that I'm getting the right product? Sure. So one of the things that you can do to ensure that you're getting the quality and the design that you want is start the project with a color idea. So recognize that the pigmentation, the manufacturer that you choose for those coatings matters and it will impact that final design. You want to be aware of your project's location. Does it require special treatment for salt spray, corrosion resistance? Other questions we get are, are you considering a lead project? Do you need a red list free or declare labels? If so, the path that you go down to choose the coating can vary depending on any of those options. So you want to align that to get that design and the budget correctly to meet all of your needs. Awesome. Kara, what about the current trends or what do you see coming around the corner in uh, metal coatings? Right. So we've noticed a trend towards a lot of natural metals, which as a paint company, that can be interesting as we're competing with those natural metals such as brass, copper, corten, and bronze. But we recently launched a metal transcolor card because let's face it, all of our projects don't have the budget for the real deal. So your brass, copper, and bronze. Our card gives that inspiration and these tones with the benefits of playing with the sparkle, gloss, and texture to achieve a natural finish there. The other benefit of a coating that you don't have with natural metal is that you don't have to worry about the rust of corten dripping down the side of your building or extreme changes in variables in the natural materials. 
You also get a warranty that often is upwards of 20 years with a metal finish. So there are benefits of going to a coating. Yeah, that sounds like a good tool. If you want more information on architectural metal coatings, please visit coil.sherwin.com forward slash architects life. Kara, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate the time. You're welcome. Good to see you guys too. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. The thing that I thought was interesting, if we go back to this cycle, when you were, I'll say part of it, it kind of evolved into this kind of passive income strategy that I know that you're a big advocate of. But in the beginning, when you tell your story, it sounds very similar to what I was kind of doing at the time when I started Life of an Architect, the blog. And it was, things were slow. I'm a creative person. I wanted to do something that fulfilled my creative needs while I learned something along the way. And my goals of what I was doing and why I was doing it were not what they became. Like it evolved into something that I couldn't have anticipated. I look back at your early stuff and how you evolved. And I don't know if we'll have time to get into it, but you know, when, when I went and visited you up in your studio, we kind of had a conversation that just kind of blew my mind. And I left going, there's no way, there's no way. This guy's just living the dream. This is like, this is ridiculous. It's everything that anybody would want. And it had to do with, you had a block of time every day that you would kind of said, this is for creating. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be print work. It could be photography. It can be, you know, filling your creative soul and not just plugging in more grunt work that's helping keep the lights on. That was a big part of it. And so the thing that I find kind of interesting, and I'm, I'm wondering, because you mentioned sacrifices. And one of the questions that I get asked from people all the time that I wanted to talk to you about has to do with sacrifices, you know, like sacrifices to other aspects of your life. For a lot of people, when they go into private practice, sometimes it's because they have other obligations or interests in their life that they're not able to take advantage of or pay attention to. You know, maybe they want to start a family, so they don't want to work 40 hours a week, but they still want to contribute. They still love what they do with the passion. And so they're like, well, why don't I go on my own and I can control the amount of work that I take on and I can have more when I have more time and I can take on less when I have less time. But anyway, so were there sacrifices when you started it or after that first year, you're like, you know what? I'm kind of found my sweet spot between doing the stuff that has value to me that actually ended up feeding into your passive income strategy versus the afternoons, which I think is how you broke it down. Uh, Andrew, I don't know if you know this. I should just let Eric tell him. Why don't you tell, I just don't know if he remembers it with such clarity as I do. Maybe I put some hyperbole to it. It was like, this is how I start my day. And I do this for a number of hours. In the middle of the day, I do this. In the afternoons, I do that. And then I unplug. That's it. And I was like, what? So Yeah, you can't do that. That would never work for you, Bob. Yeah. So Eric, share that with people who haven't had the luxury of sitting in your studio like I have and hearing it firsthand. Yeah, it's actually, it's, I call it the maker's schedule, manager's schedule. And it's just ripped off right from Paul Graham, who is the founder of Y Combinator. So he wrote this great essay. You can look it up online. It's a real short read. And basically the theory behind it is that, you know, we have these two spheres that we're working in throughout the day. There's a maker's sphere and a manager's sphere. And most people travel through the day switching between the two. So you're working on a set of elevations or window details and um, you get a phone call from the contractor, you pick up the phone, you answer the urgent need that they have or the client or whatever it is. And there's a switching cost when you have to change between those two modes. And so Paul Graham just said, here's a great way to divide up your day. You do the making in one part of your day and you just block off that time, whether that's four hours or six hours or eight hours. 
And then you do the managing part in another time and you just do one switch between the two. And so I really adopted that in my practice. And I just want to say for a minute, this wasn't planned or mapped out by me from day one because I realize sometimes that's what it sounds like looking back. I struggled for a number of years with dividing work and life and managing and making and all these things. And my dream was to not have to have this sort of strict division between my life and my work. And I think I found that nice balance, but this sort of maker's schedule, manager's schedule, really probably in 2017 started to really order my life in the studio and all my work. And so the making happens in the morning. So I'll get up pretty early, you know, four or five in the morning, and then I'll just make until about noon. And then to divide that time between the managing time, I just go out for a hike. And then in the afternoon, I'll schedule all my meetings, phone calls, all those things that don't take a lot of creative horsepower. When I've spoken with other people about this schedule, it's kind of a light bulb moment for them to say, I wish I could just have that block of time where I could just do all the creative tasks, all the things I'm interested in doing that I actually save till the end of the day because I have to fight all these fires in the morning, you know, answering email and phone calls and things like that. And, you know, I get a lot of criticism from people saying it's not possible. It's just not possible. Like if you're building a building and the contractor's having a meeting at 9am, you need to be available by phone. And it's just, it's not true. (laughs) You can set those schedules however you choose to. And I think that is the thing about the studio that I've learned over time is that starting a design practice, it can be a creative exercise, just like designing architecture, just like designing a set of elevations or plans, if we apply the same creative horsepower to it. And so we can choose what our days look like. We can design these days however we choose. And the interesting thing for me is, you know, once I instituted this maker's manager's schedule, over time, the making part has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's intentional too, because, you know, I don't love going to meetings. Like, I'd rather not go to meetings if I don't have to. It's just not something I enjoy doing. Writing invoices and all the sort of administrative stuff, like just less interested in that. So what I do is just kind of make less room for it. And then the making gets kind of bigger and bigger. And I think if that's the side of your business where the revenue scales the most, it's easier and easier to do that the more you sort of lean into it. So yeah, does that answer oh, the question? It answers like 10 questions. So Bob's <laughs> love meetings, by the way. Oh my God. The best I, thing for him I don't ever. think you'll, you'll ever meet a person that hates meetings more than I do. Part of it's <laughs> not because I don't see value in them. And it's not that I hate the people or I hate what the objectives are or how we go about them. I just think that 90% of the meetings I go to either don't need to exist or could be done in 10 minutes. Right. And part of, Part of me goes, you know what? I'm okay going here and fishing stories because half the time I'm the one who's telling them, right? Just half. So I glass houses, right? I know that. So I don't throw a lot of rocks. But there are times when I literally will be in meetings and I'll say, what else we got? Can we, are we done? Can we, are we wrapping this up right now? And I'll go, and I, I always What's think of that agenda? Chevy Chase because uh, I got a thing. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. I got a thing, right? Like we got to, let's wrap this up because, you know. I got a thing. And so I don't love meetings either. They have their time and their place, but you know, there is a difference. And I think that this is one of the really strong selling points for someone who wanted to go out on their own or be a sole practitioner like you. There's a question coming after this little soapbox thing. And that is the ability for you to control your calendar. I believe with absolute certainty, when it's just you, you can do exactly what you're describing, right? It's Pavlovian. You train people to not call you in the mornings because guess what? You're not going to answer their phone call. In fact, 
Andrew and I have a friend who works in Austin, Texas. He gives his clients one hour a week. He goes, we meet every week, right? So he meets with every project and he's a sole practitioner and he does really great work and he's carved out this like really amazing niche for himself. And he goes, if you hire me and he's not hurting on work, he goes, I will meet with you every week and your time slot might be 10 to 11 o'clock on Tuesdays. Guess what? That's the only time you get anything from him. You send him an email, he's not going to respond to it. You want want to talk to him on the phone? Talk to you on Tuesday between 10 and 11. He'll have an agenda. If you don't finish the agenda or if you send him 100 questions between, you know, 11 o'clock on Tuesday and 10 o'clock a.m. of the next Tuesday, they all go on the agenda and you only make through what you can make through for that one hour. Yeah, that's not. That's next level, man. That's next level. How do you pull that off? And he's like, I just do. It's just what it is. He goes, people have to learn that that's what it is. And he goes, it might be kind of weird or like, but he goes, man, we do not waste time. When we get to it, we get to it. And people don't ask me questions because mm-hmm. they're like, uh, that question's not as important as these other five. So we need to make sure we hit the ones that count. So I believe 100% you can. But big firms like where I'm at now, man, I don't call the shots like that. So if I have sure. a client says, I want to meet at six o'clock on this day or one o'clock on that day or 9 a.m. that way. And part of it's just trying to align the 20 people, seriously. I've been in calls during this pandemic, but there's like 25 people on a call and I bet 20 of them don't say a word. And I'm like, why are y'all on this call? You know, I think it's madness. So, yeah, I don't pretend that this works for everybody. I really don't want to put it out there. Like this is the magic pill for everybody to take. But if you're going to go ahead and design something and you're working by yourself, you might as well design something that you enjoy. Otherwise it's pure oh, misery. You know why? why I embrace not? that philosophy. I think if you have the ability to do it, and I think most of us probably would, certainly if we're in a small practice, oh my God, yeah, you should totally do this. I think it's genius. You ever think even once you get past two or three people, it becomes really difficult just because of the workload. Yeah. I could see doing it with two people, maybe two person operation. So you could switch sort of your maker manager time to make things even. And one of you is always doing one of those things. But I think once you get past that or six, then it gets really difficult. Because when I had 10 people in my office, there's no way that could have worked. You know, the thing I love most about Eric's schedule, he, he was telling me this. And when he told it to me, it was much more poetic, which just made me at the time, I was like, God, I hate this guy. <laughs> he was, he was saying, <laughs> so I wake up really early in the morning and, I, and he goes and he makes this beautiful cup of coffee and like puts it in a thermos. And then he walks, what is it? 17 steps. Yeah, It's like <laughs> yeah, 17 like steps to his studio. <laughs> and then he just, it's very Zen like the process. And then when he switches to like to the uh, manager part, now it's not like a switch. He's going to go for like a hike for like an hour or two and where he lives. It's funny when I vacationed up there, I'm like, Oh my God, look how beautiful that is. Click, click. Oh, look at that tree. The way it hits the water. Click, click. Oh, look at these amazing rocks. After like 30 minutes, I was like, everything looks like this. Like every, everything is amazing. <laughs> so I need to just quit taking pictures of it. Cause no matter where I go, there it is. So right in the middle of his day, his transition is this go out and commune with nature and go on a beautiful hike. And I go, man, that shouldn't even count. Like, I don't even know how you get to put that in the middle of your day. You're just rubbing, you're just rubbing it in my face that yeah, that's oh why I, did it. I was yep. so jealous. I cannot tell you the envy that I had. It's just cruel. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, if you live near a national park, it's hard. Uh, yeah, why not? Acadia is pretty beautiful. Okay, so the question I was actually going to go to and ask you on had to do with sacrifices, right? And it had to do with why people go into private practice. And I kind of started with the ability to control your calendar and, you know, 
find a balance in the things that's important to your life other than just making a paycheck. But for most architects that I know that at least have expressed an opinion, when they go into work for themselves, their sacrifices seem kind of almost monumental because the amount of time and effort they put into the process just to get it launched and get going, it's like all consuming. And so everybody asks me, they're like, when I start, they want to know what kind of hours do you put in? What kind of time do you spend between like, that's not family time. And I know that you've got smallish kids and you're taking your son to drum lessons and stuff like that. But how much of your time do you have to consciously carve out and say, Hey, at six o'clock Monday through Friday, I'm done. I'm making PB and J sandwiches or drinking wine with my wife out on the patio or I'm going doing whatever kid stuff. Do you have like a line that's that like that's everything in your life is so controlled. I'm wondering, do you, do you have that as well? Uh, it's funny. I used to kind of, I get in like four thirty five in the morning. I work till like six, six thirty at night. And I mean, quarantine, it feels like its own like millennium <laughs> that's been happening. So it's hard to Why? say since quarantine, cause I've just spent more and more time in here, but yeah, you know, sure. I would say this chews up a lot of my time and it does because I let it and I really like it. And, you know, I really have seen this as being, when I go on vacation, I'm not disconnecting. I'm like, I'm still doing the filming. I'm still looking at architecture. I'm still sketching. Like all those things still happen. So like the work-life balance, like it's just a continuum for me. It's just, there are, for me, it's better if there's no boundary, which means I spend a heck of a lot of time in here and doing the things that I really love doing, which is why I said the making has kind of expanded to fill more and more time as opposed to the managing. When I was working in the house, and I think, you know, a lot of people, if they're just starting their firm and they don't have, you know, a separate office to go to, you're not, you're trying to keep it lean. When I was working out of the house, I definitely drew a very strict line. Like, I don't want to be thinking about work, you know, after five o'clock. And it just, that was it. And I didn't have the maker schedule, manager schedule at that time. It was just kind of messy. And so I think that one of the best things was actually moving out of the house and having a separate space to go to that I know when I'm here, like this is the creative kind of cage that I'm in and like this is what's happening when I'm in here. So yeah, I think there's families definitely taking a backseat to things. When school's operational, I make time to do all of my kids' things. And you know, that's one of the things being able to control your own schedule. If you feel like knocking off in the middle of the day and going down to see your kids' concert in southern Maine, you can do that. Um, or if you want to leave for a vacation for three weeks, you can do that too. And and I'm not asking anybody for permission to be in here or be out of here. But the reason I spend so much time here is because, you know, I made something that I really enjoy working in sure. and doing. Um, so it's hard to leave. Well, let me ask you this, because you talked about if I want to go on vacation for three weeks, I go. So one of the things that I also hear a lot about is when you work for yourself, when you're not working, you're not making any money. And it's hard sometimes for people to say, I need to not work because it's good for the rest of my life and my mental health, as opposed to working all the time. It's just good for my pocketbook. So when work is good, you know, that's a nice problem to have. And it's, you know, it's an esoteric conversation about when you take off and when you don't, when you actually have work in the pipeline and on the desk at the moment. But what about when time's light? One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, do you have a workload that you won't exceed? There's two different ways that I mostly hear how people deal with this. Some people deal with like the number of projects, like they know how they work and 
they get hired to do a certain type of work because they've been around doing it for a while and people are coming to them to get that product. So they know, hey, I want to have two projects in development and I can have three in construction in any one phase. That's my max. And if you come to me with house number three in development, you go on a waiting list, right? Mm -hmm. I know some people say, hey, in order to maintain my lifestyle and pay for my kids' private school and whatever, whatever, I need to bill a certain amount, which equates to a certain body of work because maybe some projects don't pay as well as other projects. So they determine their hours and their workload based on the fee associated with those projects. There is a question coming down the road eventually regarding how do you bill, like how do you charge fees? But have you established which one are you? Are you a time person or are you a project person? Are you fee time person or are you hours spent project total person? I have one project in design and one in construction at a time. That's the ideal mix. And I have a waiting list. So when the one's done with the designs moving into construction, and it's not always perfect, but the next one pops on from the waiting list. So the waiting list has three people on it, four people on it at most probably, because it kind of depends on how long they're willing to wait. And that has worked out really well for me so far. But, you know, I've only been doing this seven years, so. <laughs> well, there, here's a stat for you. You ready for this? While I was researching for today's show, I found a stat that said less than 15% of new design businesses survived their first year. Oh, wow. Yeah. No kidding. Now, that was not specific to architectural profession. That Just creative things. Creative, like, so, yeah, yeah if like you're graphic a graphic design. designer. Or, yeah, if you're, if you're providing a creative product as a service provider, that kind of bubble, 15% success rate uh, wow. after the yeah. first year. I wonder if that counts like food trucks and stuff though. You no, know, it really was driven towards like graphic designers, web designers, architects, everyone who kind of has a, an esoteric process to a deliverable. Gotcha. Like they're still service yeah, providers. It's not passive income. They're like, I get hired to do a job and hand it to you for money kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of go back to this, like I can see how, if you're working, if you just have a project in construction and a project in design, there's got to be some other revenue. And I think for me, the reason it works is because I did that split between products and services. So 80% of my revenue actually comes from not working with clients. So right. that's a really nice mix for me because that can scale even further than that. And I, I see a lot of potential with that. But, you know, the client services, it's great work because I use it to feed into all the other content I'm making. So right. I don't want to step away from it. It keeps me in touch with clients and people I like working with. And all that content is just, it's gold. That's the business I created. Just spin all that information and the byproducts of the design process, just spin that into content for the channel. And just, that's the thing that generates all the revenue. I think that's kind of where the entrepreneurial sort of bent to the practice came in and it's worked out. That makes me super happy to not have to balance all these kind of the client and contractor load. Like I just, right. it's not enjoyable having a huge load like that for me personally. Well, okay. So let's talk about that a little bit because some of the people listening will say, I don't have a YouTube channel with 800,000 followers <laughs> and, you know, and I don't have all this, which okay, that's on you. You, you got to work towards that. You could go down that same path. It just doesn't happen overnight. But for the person who maybe doesn't have your skill set or doesn't have the interest, because I know it's not just that you do it, you actually like doing it. It's a hobby that you've been able to 
turn and kind of feed into your process in such a way that has worked out on many different levels. So the passive income for you, which we've chatted about in the past, you know, it has to do with the plan sets that you developed, or it might have to do with working up with a vendor to say, yeah, I'll talk about your product in the way that I want to talk about it in a way, if I think it's helpful or beneficial to the people who typically come to my channel. So if you want to know about iPads for architects, if they're worth having, I can talk about it and it's very realistic and it's an honest voice. And these are all valuable services that are not fee-based. If you don't have those things, I think a lot of people are like, I can't do just one project in design and one project in construction. And I think that if you just translate the passive income, it kind of suggests like, oh, I did the work once and I never have to work again. That's only partially true for some of it. You work hard to create a lot of the content that you're doing. The smart thing is, is that you're taking what you do for your job and using that to turn into your content. Not, they're not two separate creative streams, right? You're not designing a house over here and then thinking up ways that you can, like, what should I talk about on the video? You're like, well, I'll talk, yeah. I'll talk about what I'm doing on this house. Yeah, it's like it's a perfect symbiosis. And I would push back on anyone who says, I mean, I started with zero subscribers on all of my socials, just like everybody else does, right? And, you know, the stuff I made for many, many years, I would not be proud to show anyone. I, I leave it on the YouTube channel so people can look back and see where I started on day one. I mean, it's horrible. It's, it's, oh, I'm gonna go it's terrible. I'm going digging. Yeah, now. you should, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's awful stuff. And, so, you know, we all start off with zero audience and, you know, I think there is a difference between, yes, of course, you're not going to come right out of the gate and make 80% of your income from passive income by advertising on YouTube. If you have 10 subscribers, like it's not going to happen. But the idea for me was how can I take everything that I'm doing and just turn it into like, not only turn it into a marketing engine, because, you know, I need to do marketing anyway for my design business. Right. So all I did and if you go back and look at those early videos, I was doing the same stuff. Like I was designing projects and I was just showing how I designed them. Like right. here's how you do a site analysis. And like I was making videos about it and I was writing about it. And I was just trying all of this stuff and some of it stuck and some of it didn't. And I got to learn from those experiments. It's, it's no different than writing Life of an Architect, right? I mean, you didn't start off with a, an express goal in mind, but you're sharing information. It's this idea of like, yeah, you know, this kind of scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. It's like architects, I think, are pretty quick to say, oh, this is like my proprietary process and information. Whereas I think that the exact opposite should be the case. Like the client is buying your process, right? That's what they're buying. So why not put it out there? Why not show what you're doing? Just show your process and your work, even the messy stuff. And then in that process, what they do is they get to, they, they sort of are indoctrinated into your particular process. So yeah. it ends up being this fantastic marketing engine along the way. So yeah, yeah you might not have 10,000 subscribers, but like if someone's contacting you and you made this little video about your design process and that was part of the, the packet that you shared with a client before they were going to meet with you the first time, I can guarantee it makes that first meeting a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. 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 People come to my office. There's no question. Like it's not the typical interview process anymore for me. Yeah. People already know me, yeah. you know? And so that, I tell people that all the time, you know, yeah. it's, and it's that idea that they may read the blog for a year or two. And actually the project I got up North, they read my blog for two years before they called me on the phone. And I take it as a great compliment now that when people come and they sit down to meet me, they go, you're just like I thought you'd be. 
right? And that's because they know who I am because there's a voice to the work that I've shared. Yeah. And I don't try to hold myself out as perfect. And interestingly enough, that's the thing that resonates with people. Not that totally. you are this polished, flawless individual. It's that you've got edges and wrinkles that actually make you a, maybe a more interesting person. And that if you're willing to go onto a platform and say, you know what, I put these lights here. It didn't work out how I thought it would. So we're going to fix it. They go, wow. I actually had someone uh, during an interview go, wow, finally met an architect that didn't have a stick up their ass. <laughs> <laughs> but those are my favorite posts of yours too. I mean, I read your blog for a long time before we met and I love seeing the grit, the mistakes, all the, how the sausage is made. Like it's all interesting to me. And so if you can use that as a marketing engine, but then on top of that, you start building other products and you can earn some advertising revenue. Like it's this flywheel. It really, it really does work. And I don't pretend that it's going to work for everybody. I just realized pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be the guy that was working on five different projects. <laughs> like it's, and that may work for some other people, but for me and the kind of creative life that I want to have, that was not going to make me happy. And, yeah. um, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I kind of, this may or may not be an apt uh, comparison, but I always thought like, did you, did you ever work in food service? Like were you ever a waiter somewhere? I wasn't. No, I was. Andrew, uh, yeah. Were you? Yeah. Worked in food service. All right. So I never did. And I knew that I never could because I would be that waiter that when I walk by a table and they're like, uh, excuse me, sir, can I get some ketchup? I'm like, of course, very reasonable request. I would have to go get the ketchup and bring it back to you right then. If I walk by another table, and they're like, uh, can I get another round of lemonades? I'm like, uh-huh, sure. And then the next one goes, uh, I dropped my fork. Can I new fork? Okay, two of those orders are going to get screwed up, right? <laughs> I, I go, so me jumping around from a design flow as a single person, I go, I don't know that I could get my head in the right linear flow and ping pong between, like when I have a team, I can do that. I have the ability mm -hmm. to think high band on teams and stuff. But when I'm responsible for the white paper process, I don't like to work on this project for like an hour, then that project for like an hour, then this project for an hour, and that one for 90 minutes because, you know, whatever. I don't like doing that. Yeah. I must be the oddball. Well, that, because both of you guys are shaking your head yeah, like, man. Of course you are. I like to bounce around. Do you? Really? To me, it's more creative. So I can think about that problem, think about this problem. And they just all sort of invigorate one another and push it along. And I feel like if I drill down and focus on one too much, I get blinders and it limits what I'm doing and how I can. So bouncing around, I, I like it. it. Keeps me going. Sure. Yeah. But you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I figured as much. Yeah, You'd maybe, hate my business maybe. then. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, it, it sounds great except for the one project at a time thing. Yeah. That's the only part of me that said that, yeah, that would not work for me to keep me entertained. I'd have to go on more well, hikes. You know, it might, <laughs> part of this might just be the difference, Andrew, because like when I think about my process now versus what was a couple of years ago, the difference really was residential work versus commercial work. Mm, yeah. You know, Eric does residential work. And I'm wondering if this is more of a residential kind of thought process because you get into the, the small bits, the details so quickly on residential work that allows you to drill down and, and still ping pong around different things, but it's all are woven into the same tapestry, which is not the same thing as moving from house one to house two to house three, because they have different, they have all the same parts, but it's like a different tapestry altogether. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like, like you're driving on the road and you go, oh, look at that. Wait, I'll look at that in an hour. <laughs> no, I need to, I'll do that now. And then yeah. when there's a break, then. So I wonder sometimes if that might be a residential kind of mindset versus a commercial. Yeah, it could be. It could be part of it. So Eric, let's talk money for a second. 
how much do you make? I'm just kidding. <laughs> millions. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's what I tell people too. Eric makes millions. <laughs> nice. Yep. No, so yeah, I don't tell them about me. <laughs> you know what I found? Because I get asked that question a lot. I'm sure you get it too. From, oh, yeah. And people go, oh my God, you must be killing it. What do you get on it? You know what? That's a rude question. <laughs> so I always say, you know what? I'm doing all right. I can pay my bills. I get to take a vacation. Life is good. I have no complaints. That's the right answer to that question. I always say millions because millions, you know, they don't ask me to specify how many millions of what. So yeah, you know, yeah. millions of pennies, millions of dollars, whatever. Oh, millions of pesos? Rupees. Yeah. Oh, all right. We're just going like there's millions of rupees is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, that's where I get most of the questions. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's my question about the finances. I, I actually am not asking for you to tell us what you make. But what I am curious about is like, as a sole practitioner, I know that one of the things that standalone people are really not great at is actually like when you put your accountant's hat on and like doing the billing. And I know some that will only bill like every couple of months and they'll just say, oh, like I didn't work much on your property and I'm not going to send you a bill for $1,200. I'll just wait until it hits a certain amount and then I'll just <laughs> I'll ding you with it. Yeah. How do you handle it? I mean, I, I guess it's, it's really not that interesting a question since <clears throat> you have two jobs basically. I mean, but I, I, let's give it a I shot. bill like that a lot of the time. <laughs> I mean, it kind of depends. I try and bill monthly. So I bill, it's an hourly billing rate for me. And what I do is I kind of have the spreadsheet. You know, we look at the budget of the project and I estimate my fee based on whatever the budget is. So let's say it's a 15% fee. And then, you know, I just divide it up by the design process. So I think I'm going to spend 20% in design development and 35% in CDs and so on and so forth. And so I give the client spreadsheet that says, okay, here's what we're billing this month. Here's how much you can expect so that they have an idea. Cause you know, a lot of people, when you say I bill hourly, they're, you know, it's a little bit of a freak out. They want to be able to budget for what the fee is going to be. But you know, I try and bill monthly, but I just way prefer the cash that hits my account just automatically. <laughs> that's just much, well, much easier. Well, okay. So that's, that's a reason. Yeah. Don't we all, but not everybody has the luxury. Yeah. Eric. Well, Go you on. can, I that's mean. the thing. <laughs> Well, okay. So let, I'll give you my answer because people, I mean, it's not like I don't know how to do this either, but so, so here's how we would do it, <laughs> right? I worked for one firm for 15 years and we build monthly based on a percentage of the budget of the project. So for us, if it was like 12%, we'd look at and go, all right, 20% SD, 25% DDs, and then 45% and then, you know, 5%, 10% whatever that math broke down to. And we would kind of estimate how far along we were and yeah. then say, all right, we're at 20% of this 20%. So that's this dollars. That's how that would work. You know, we didn't get burned very often by like spending a disproportionate number of hours and go, wow, we only had 400 hours for this based on this fee. And we spent nine, like that just didn't happen very often. But the last six years, we build almost exclusively hourly. And the thing about hourly work, it's a very defensive way to run a business. Yeah. We never really, now assuming you build the hours you work, which on my jobs, I did. When I work, I work. And so when we would do our billing, it was an hourly fee. And when we would first interview with people, most of the people who hired us, they bill hourly. You know, we do work with people that understand that as a billing concept. And the way we would describe it for the people that said, oh my God, I mean, hourly, you could just like kill me. I don't know how long this process takes. And so we'd say, well, if you anticipate somewhere in the 10 to 15% is where our fee will fall as an hourly, 
But the good news is we don't spend the time. We don't bill you for it. So you're not going to get hit for a 15% fee if I do the work in 8% of the hourly cost, right? But you have a lot of control in this. So as you start this, if you don't need a lot of handholding, if you don't need to ask a lot of questions, if you know, we establish a certain level of trust uh, right from the get-go, then this process goes a lot faster and my service fee is a lot lower. But if you turn out that you love it and you're like, hey, can we do 18,000 design studies on this bathroom? I'm not going to get murdered because I didn't charge you to do 18,000 iterations of this bathroom. So it typically worked out really well because the people who were high maintenance, they know it, right? They may not think that they're high maintenance, but they realize what they're asking for when they ask for it. And so never had any problems with it. And so the bad part about billing hourly is you can never make more than what the profit margin is built into your hourly fee. Mm -hmm. So you don't get rewarded if you're really efficient with your time, right? Totally. If you get, your, if you're good at putting your nose down and working and, and moving along a linear path and not circling back around, you know, just cause you're interested, or if you did sloppy work and you got to go back and fix things, right. You can make more money on a percentage base fee than you can an hourly base. But like I said, it's defensive to run it with an hourly cause you never lose money either. I saw, you know, previous firms that I worked for get crushed by fixing a fee and just having clients just run away with time and they fix the fee for the whole job. And you know, if construction is delayed, you're hosed. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of problems. And I think, uh, yes, you have to do the math. You have to know your multiplier and what your, um, your profit margin is. And I feel pretty confident that, I mean, it's worked out pretty well for me so far. You know, I don't know how much time we want to spend on this. We could probably keep going for a long time, but I think that, depending on your current station in life, particularly thinking about young people starting out. Yeah. I think the process of starting your own firm and taking on the problems and the challenges and like doing your own taxes, that kind of stuff really starts with believing in yourself and your abilities, which is a far better way to go about beginning a new design firm rather than doing it as a result of not having other options. Yeah, for sure. You yeah. know, it's yeah, there was a lot of that during the recession, right? A whole lot of there's that. There's a lot know. of that. That's what else is going to do. Yeah. And unfortunately, despite so many of us think about going out our own as a fantasy, it never goes beyond that kind of if you're thinking about doing it, you want to put some pencil to paper and you don't want to rush the process. You know, be prepared, think it through, have a plan in place. Whether or not that's working for yourself kind of off hours for a bit. I had a contractor friend of mine for a long time. And he used to say, if you're ever thinking about going out on your own, he goes, you need to create a war chest so that when nothing goes right for six months, <laughs> you don't have to pack it in. So his advice to me, depending on like the threshold, like the area that you want to work, if you're just doing porch additions or something, maybe that threshold doesn't have to be that high. But if you're doing the work that I was doing, which is pretty high end, maybe it takes longer to get that job. He goes, you want to have a year worth of war chest money so that you can do it right you can get the type of jobs that you want and you don't have to fill it in with the things that you don't want because that's what you're speaking about in the beginning. You could end up building a portfolio full of the work that paid the bills and you're trying to show people, look, people do hire me to do stuff and you're yeah. showing light commercial or this retail infill project that you took on and then this deck edition and then this master bedroom and then it's confusing to people that are thinking about trying to hire you. They're like, well, I want someone to do this for me and that's not what I'm seeing yeah. you know, of these six projects. 
Yeah. People have to be able to see their project in your portfolio. That's what yeah. I always tell people. And I think it doesn't mean we don't all start out there, but I think just being intentional and strategic and how you design the business that you're creating is important. I mean, I still have the war chest too. I mean, I still live in fear of like, okay, what if I don't get a project for a year? Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, the wait list is pretty long right now, but I think that's still good practice no matter what stage you're in. The other thing I would say, and we haven't really touched on this, is I hear from a lot of people who want to start their design firm like right out of school, you know, and that's, it's great because you have all this energy, but I'm not sure that's the best plan. I mean, I learned so much interning for other people and making mistakes on someone else's dime. It's, <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. I mean, I made, yeah. I made some big mistakes. On somebody else's liability, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's and the best. You don't want to be there, especially in a new design business. So give yourself some cushion and some room and some experience and some time to grow and learn the ropes a little bit before you're ready to just dive into your thing. That's what I would say. No, I would tell people the same thing. While I don't like the phrase earn while you learn, that kind of is a little bit about what we're talking about. And it is the very least exposing yourself to the things that matter to you, something that you can yeah. learn during this process. There's a certain amount of figuring out who you are so that you can design your life to a certain extent that is in tremendous flux when you're 24 or 25 or 26 years old. There are a lot of life events that are happening and I'm not sure that everyone kind of really knows what matters to them because they're not really sure who they are yet, even though they probably think they do at the time. But I've never met a person who is in their thirties or forties saying, look at back. What do you think of yourself as a 24 year old? They're like, <laughs> yeah. nobody ever says, oh, I nailed it. I, yeah. I mean, it was perfect. Not one person ever. I don't do that looking back at 40 either. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty bad. <laughs> so I do think that it's a good idea. And this is the other thing. At the very least, you can see what not to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the number of lessons that I always thought, well, if I ever go out on my own, I can guarantee you I won't do that. Totally. You know, those probably number far greater in their counts than the things I go, I'm gonna do it exactly like this. This is this we killed it. Andrew, I mean yeah, what do you think? but I also think that that's a mentality of someone who wants to do that, go out on their own anyway, but have that notion of, well, I can do it better. I'm going to go do it that way if it was me. I think that's the idea that pushes you towards doing things on your own and doing it my way. But that sounds like every architect I've ever met. I can do <laughs> no, this yeah, better. Yeah. That was me. Maybe so. <laughs> right? But not all of them, I think. Okay. No, not all of them, but the, the Yeah, maybe some, but then they just don't have the, you know. To go do it. Well, I think you have to think that to start your own thing, don't you? Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> well, you said the word stress a minute ago, and I did have something here I wanted to ask, and I thought, no, I'll just skip over it because, you know, we've been on the call for a while. So it has to do with the stress. A lot of people always ask me, hey, Bob, why don't you go out on your own? And I, I think about it all the time, all the time, all the time. But the problem is, is I don't think I handle that sort of, like I need someone to share the stress with. Like I mm -hmm. need to, I need to vent. I need to, I need to bounce ideas off people. I don't like working in a vacuum, even though I'm more than willing to not listen to anything you have to say, <laughs> but I still want to ask you, right? Just as a process, like almost cathartic. Yeah. And I remember towards the end of my stint at my last office, there was some things that were taking place and they just were in my head all the time. And it just was like wrecking every hour of my life. And I was like, this is the worst. I hate this. And it's the one thing that keeps me from going out. Because you know what? The truth is, I think I could go out on my own. I think I do fine. I think I do all right. I think I'm pretty good at what I do. And I get along well with people. And 
I don't have any clients that go, that was a disaster. At least they don't say it to my face. And so <laughs> one, I don't think I'd want to work by myself. Like maybe if it was like I had other people in the office, even if we were all doing our, our own thing, I could do that. But the thing that always got me was the money side of it, that I go, I have responsibilities to my family. And in my mind, those responsibilities weigh more heavily on my mind than my dream of going out on my own, right? Making sure that I do what I'm supposed to do and I provide the way I'm supposed to provide and I let them have the opportunities that they should get to have. And maybe that's an outdated, you know, 1950s guy thinking that my family comes first and I will do a job that I hate because that's my role is to make sure that they're provided for. It's in my head. Mm -hmm. And I know that it is. Before I made the switch, I talked to my, both my wife and my daughter. My daughter was 15. And even my daughter said, I think the stress would kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I do think that there are some people that are more better suited for handling the stress doesn't bother them so much about when's the next project or when would the bill come in? Or can I make sure that like my daughter goes to like private school? It just feels selfish of me to put her in a position to where, oh my God, what if I have to pull her out of school because we can't make that private school tuition payment. And my brain just was like, not your decision. That's, you don't get to do that. And so I think starting out these firms when you don't have as many obligations it's the one argument that I think that is good for young people to go do this. Do this before you have all these other burdens on your life that it might actually cause you to second guess a decision that you might normally make if you weren't trying to solve other problems. I totally appreciate that viewpoint. And I feel those same, same tug of responsibility. But you know, another way to kind of think about it is if I could push back on that and just kind of say that I think that financial stress for me, like huge huge burden. And I think anyone who goes out on their own, they're going to feel that. And for me, that was the fire that made me want to do more things and experiment and work harder and really drive me. And I don't think that is true for everybody. I think for some people that can just drive them away and say, well, it's a heck of a lot easier working for this other firm. I think in general, it takes a lot for someone to make a big change in their life. And starting a design firm is a big change, you know, stepping away from a comfortable sort of paycheck huge, huge change. So you have to be pretty uncomfortable. I mean, if the options are staying in the work, in the job is more uncomfortable than actually starting the firm, then it's kind of a different calculus. And I think in a lot of ways for me, that's where I got to. I mean, I didn't start the firm until I was 39 years old. So I was like you, I was like, oh, I really want to do this. It's fun to talk about it. But then the actual reality of doing it is like, ooh, it's too scary to do until- It's scary. Yeah. Until you get really uncomfortable. And you know, when you get uncomfortable, then you say, well, maybe this is not a bad option. So for me, the financial picture just was all the heat under the crucible that kind of, I guess, forged the work. I mean, that, that's what I liked about it. So you know, the stress, I think, is hard to avoid no matter what. I mean, I'm sure you have stress in your jobs right now. I mean, so how do you deal with stress normally? Is it exercise? Is it just checking out? Is it realizing that you know, it's just architecture? It's not the end of the world, you know? I yell at Andrew. That's how I... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, long high to the Kick woods. the dog. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think that the, you're talking about that and the fact that you... It's interesting at the very beginning, you said that things getting rough at your previous job and you had to get that 20% decrease and that you were worried about getting a paycheck every two weeks. And so your response to that is to just go start your own business where you might not get a paycheck for like two months, not even two weeks. <laughs> Well, at least I was in control. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. That's right. It's that sort of mentality of 
at least I was in charge of it. And then I'm not relying on somebody else for it, you know? Yeah. But I think that's an interesting switch. Yeah. To go back. Totally. I mean, it's always stressful though about, yeah. True. Am I going to be able to make, make ends meet and make payroll and those kind of things. Yeah, for sure. It's the one part of starting your own business that is kind of the elephant in the room. Everybody knows it's there, but it's not the part that people talk about when they're living the fantasy. Like, oh, if I got on my own, they don't think about the, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to have so much stress and getting bills paid. It's going to be great. I'm going to love it. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody, nobody ever talks about that. Yeah. Nobody just works when you have employees. Yeah. The employee thing really scares me, you know, and you guys have different perspectives on this for sure. And especially you, Andrew. I mean, that would be super stressful for me. This is the first summer I've had an intern and I'm like, oh my God, I got to tell someone what to do. And you know, I got to come up with more work for that. It's like, it's not what I wanted. <laughs> and so I think, you know, my business is very, it is a silo that it's very particular to me in a lot of ways. And I think not everyone would be happy doing all the drafting and doing all the other things that I do too. But I think it's just about finding the right mix, you know, for you, Andrew, like, if you're going to do a bigger project, you need a drafting crew that's going to handle all that stuff. And you need someone to handle the marketing. And, yeah. and I totally get that. And I appreciate that. But it's just about being intentional and knowing what you want and what makes you happy. And I think in amongst the options, you get to choose. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's it. Okay, well, look, that's kind of a high note. So <laughs> I think that we should segue into today's hypothetical question. And this is actually another one of Andrew's hypotheticals. This one's mine? Yeah, this one was yours. I and, didn't remember that. Yeah, yeah. It, so Nobody's dying. Does it seem right? I know. This is, see, Andrew has the darkest hypotheticals. <laughs> I like it. He yeah. has one, so I'm like, we can't even say that on the show, more or less answer it. <laughs> so the one today, it's kind of easy. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to go last because I'm going to make fun of you if you don't answer this correctly. Shocking. <laughs> so that's, this is my kind of hypothetical because while there are three answers, there's really only one answer. So, Yeah, that's what I think too. Yeah, all right. I figured we all, look, if we don't all have. Yeah, but we're not the same yeah, answer. Whether or not you have my man. answer will determine whether or not you've successfully navigated your first hypothetical on the Life of an Architect podcast. So, Oh man, the pressure. I know. Here you go. The stress. So here we go. <laughs> if you could have free unlimited service for five years from an extremely qualified chef, chauffeur, or masseuse, which would you choose? So Eric, we're going to let you go first since you're our guest. As a guest, which means you get to make the first Okay, mistake. We both get to make fun of you. That's how that works. <laughs> yeah. Well, this seems really easy. I mean, this seems like a softball to me. A masseuse, definitely not interesting to me. I don't want people in my personal space. I mean, you see where I work, right? I live on an island. I don't want to. I don't want people near me. I definitely don't want people touching me. And yeah, yeah, because you might bump into that person at the grocery store. Like, I mean, like, there's <laughs> right? not that many people yeah. where you live. Whose fat fingers are those? Yeah. <laughs> so that's out for sure. And I'm too much of a control freak to have someone drive me around. My son's 16 now, so he's learning to drive. And that's speaking about stress. That's horribly stressful. Oh, yeah. You've been through this before, I know. But oh, yeah. yeah. My, my daughter, my daughter yeah, turned yeah. 16, not even a month ago, and she's got her car. And so, boy, we're in month one of her driving out and doing stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, agony. I'm under a year. Yeah, it's bad, right? It so yeah. no chauffeur for me. And, you know, I can't stand cooking. So to have someone cook for me, that's a dream. So okay. I know I answered it correctly. You know what? You did answer it correctly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Andrew. So don't I even need to answer? 
since you already know the right answer? Well, I mean, do you have a different one? I mean, prove us wrong. Yeah, I did. Kind of, kind of. I bet. I, wait, Ooh. you know what? Let me guess. Because I actually thought I went, Andrew's going to get this wrong. But it's not necessarily wrong for him. You would want a chauffeur. No, I would not. What? And, so here's the thing. Andrew drives. I used like, to. I don't drive that much anymore. Well, not now, but for a while. I just spent five years ago, hands down, would have picked a chauffeur. Andrew was like a long haul trucker in his job. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but that's when I had projects all over the state yeah. and oh. driving 10 hours a day. And then now I don't. Oh, yeah. And wow. I go, just think of all he could get done if oh, someone yeah. had to. Yeah, for sure. So you want a masseuse, huh? Oh, it's even, yeah, maybe. It's even worse. That's, that's all. No. <laughs> no, it's not. I used to get massages every two weeks. And that was the most relaxed and stress-free I've ever been in my life. Uh, oh. But he sat at a desk all day and all hunched over and, you know, but. Yeah, sure. It was either that or a chef. And so those were the two. And so I think I still would stick with the chef just because, I think, we kind of talked about this recently, but if I had somebody prepare my meals, I could tell them to make them healthy for me, right? I don't want to do it on my own, but if somebody's doing it for me, <laughs> then they could make me something that was really right. healthy and tasted good, and I would eat it. And I'm not the one that's having to like make it, so ensure that it's good for me. Yeah, It's much easier for me to make stuff that's bad. Who knows? Maybe the chef, they're like, you know what? Butter well, makes everything taste better. Like they could just be making like really like restaurant style artery chokes. Not if I, not if I tell them. I know. you don't. To not do that. Well, we did say that they were extremely qualified. So. Yeah. So healthy. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you, Eric, I don't know if you've ever had uh, like a massage. So I've had two in my life. Oh, see, that's your problem. No. You know why? I've had like 50. I know. That's because you're disgusting so no oh man (laughs) the first the first one i had was in hot springs arkansas there's a particular hotel where they actually have mineral baths some of the rooms actually get this mineral water and it's a really great experience and it's supposed to be this relaxing kind of thing so i'm drinking i'm smoking cigar back i never really smoked but this was like i go i should smoke a cigar because i'm super relaxing my wife and i it's like let's go get massages right so we go down into the basement it is like a scene out of Saw. Like there's just white tile, like everything's tiled everywhere. Oh, and my wife goes, yeah. I'm out. Scared. <laughs> She's gone. And I go, I'm like, I'm here, so I'm going to do it. So I go in this room and maybe the first thing was, it was a dude that gave me the massage. Like a little set me off a little bit. And he was with the oils and the new age music. And I go, I never really felt that comfortable. So, so, but you know, once I got past the, I'm out of my comfort zone here. I mean, it was okay. But like a year ago, I went to China. We were in Shanghai and everyone's like, oh, there's actually like a really good pro level massage place. We stayed at the Portman designed hotel, beautiful hotel. We go in and they don't speak English and I certainly don't speak Chinese. And they're saying like, like, what do you want? And I go, uh, I was like, uh, regular, can I get like regular? <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to describe it, regular. The number 12. Like, just the regular one. So they lead me down this hallway and it's, it's really nice. And it's like, you know, it wasn't cheap. And I go in and she's just kind of pointing at stuff. And I go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So she points to the closet and there's a robe in there. And I go, am I supposed to take off all my clothes? Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. So I took off everything, but I left my underwear on. Cause I'm like, I don't want her to start the process and go, Whoa, you're not supposed to take, this is not a nude place. <laughs> so I'm in, so I'm in my underwear and I'm sitting down on this little stool and they come in and they wash my feet. The whole thing. It's very ritualized. 
And then I lay down and she starts massaging my back and it hurts bad. <laughs> like, I mean, I was like, I'm pretty sure somehow she was like in the air, like squeezing me with the, like her dragon toes. I mean, it was like deep muscle. And I felt bad for like three days. I was like, oh my God, I'm so sore. I don't want this. And I realized, and maybe this is what's inappropriate. I wanted a sensual massage. (laughs) I just wanted wanted it to feel good. I'm like, I don't need. No, you just didn't want the deep tissue massage. You wanted something different. Yeah. You just didn't know. I know. What you were getting into. I absolutely. You needed an ultralight. You asked for regular. Yeah. And you know what? Well, I don't think light was really what I was saying. And the thing is, is when she got down to where my britches were, Man, I got an atomic wedgie because she's like, I think she's like, this is not, spo- you're not supposed to be in these. <laughs> Weird. She grabbed the bottom of my underwear on, on the back of both my thighs and just like, like pulled it up. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it wasn't a fun experience. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Yeah, it was a bad experience. Yeah. So even oh, if I, so you haven't had a good one. I have, I, I would say, I haven't, I mean, I've had lots of good ones. Look, so. you know what? I, this is, I'm not criticizing people who like massages. I know people that love them. I'm just saying for me, I would get more, like, I wouldn't want a massage every day. I mean, maybe some people would, but I yeah, don't like it every day either. So, yeah, I don't want somebody driving for me. I kind of like driving if it's like, you know, just kind of cruising around. That's like, I'm not that guy that has to sit in the back because I got to make important phone calls. So I need to show up. <laughs> right. I'm not that guy. Massages, I go, uh, you know, at best, one a week. That seems like that'd be like a bit much even then, but no, one a week would be good. But I go, a chef. Chef, I mean, oh my God, I would yes. have a little bell by my bed. <laughs> you know, bring me my crocs, monsieur. You know, I would get huge. Just, I'd be, there are no limits. Whatever you want to make, just make it. I'm going to eat it. Well, I think I would eat more, you know, because I don't eat maybe two meals a day anyway. But like, if I got up in the morning and it was breakfast, I'd eat it. Bring it on, man. Yeah. Oh my God. You didn't specify, but I kind of pictured they were doing all the dishes too. So. I think that's, that's true. You know what? Let's say that that's true. Yeah. That's true. I don't even know that I care. I mean, I do the dishes if somebody's cooking. I mean, it's just clean. You just don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Just, you don't have to do it. <laughs> I know. I like the idea of, I love cooking. That's the thing about it. For a second, I was like, yeah, but I like cooking. But the thing is, is I don't have the time to cook the way I like to. Yeah. Like if I'm going to cook, man, I'm getting every pot and pan dirty. Mm-hmm. Like somehow I'll, <laughs> I'll use all four measuring things. Like, I, oh, that's my wife. I can't stand <laughs> it. It's, uh, that drives me nuts. I use them all. Every single one of them. Yeah, of course. It's like, what's the, how, yeah. how do you do that? I mean, you just gotta, and I'll tell myself, mise en place, mise en place, like everything in its place. You know, I'm that, that person when I'm doing it for sure. I would miss it, but you know. Well, but I'd you still, can still do that, right? You can just say, man, I'm going to make this. I'm going to grill some pork butt this weekend. You're going to be off. Yeah, side hustle. You don't have to do it. I will say this with absolute certainty. I could have the best chef in the world as my chef. And I would turn it into them teaching me how to do things. Like I wouldn't just, I joked about, Smart. I'd be joking about that. I'm in the bed. That'd probably just be for breakfast. But for other things, I would be in the kitchen watching them do it. I, I think that that's part of why I wanted to choose a chef was not just to have food show up on my table that I didn't have to make. I think that I would enjoy watching the knife skills and the sequencing and how do you mm. cook everything so it's all ready at the same time. And whisk in a figure eight as opposed to back and forth. I'm, those are all the things that I would kind of get into for sure. Was that a thing? So, I didn't know that was a thing. I was like, is that a thing? Whisking in a figure eight? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just whisking? The gesture I'm doing on my screen. Oh, this is not video. That, that's the move. And you know what? I'm not that good at that move. Not as good as Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ouch. Yeah, I know. 
So Ridiculous. I'm going to wrap the whole thing up. This was an interesting conversation for me. I hope you enjoyed it as well, but I think it's time to call it a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 56, Starting a Design Firm. We'd also like to thank our guest today, Eric Reinhold from 30 by 40 Design Workshop. Thanks guys. It was great being here. Great chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks a lot for taking the time. We appreciate it. Pleasure is ours. It's always nice chatting with you and glad I could finally get you on the show with everybody because I'm sure they've been dying for it to happen. <laughs> right on. Let's do it again. If you like today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head to your favorite podcast listing app and hit that subscribe button so you can get so fresh and so clean new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment. And I would really appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star Diamond Jubilee rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, and info from this episode. Be sure to stick around until the very end, because if there are any bloopers, that's where you'll find them. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Your contact page is like, you don't know where I am. Like, <laughs> there's a little bit of that. Okay. Yeah, well, I had people showing up at my doorstep, you know, like. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> You're going to have to edit this out. I'm really, I'm just what? making editing work. We're editing lots of stuff. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I don't want to take time away from your family, at least not all of it. Oh, they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to they the club. Like this, <laughs> this is fun. Yeah. There's down the studio. We can stay there. <laughs> right. He's 17 steps away. Wish it was 19. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>